Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, I speak with Al Pitt and Polly. Al's frustration with endless meetings and other things that don't seem to have a purpose led to what he calls a meetings revolution. 
In this episode, we discuss his experience as one of Seth Godin's first alternative MBA students, publishing a book with the Domino Project, and why we must learn to become persuadable. That's right, not persuasive, but persuadable, and how this enables us to spread ideas. Al, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Great to be here, Sweeney. Yeah. So I came across you by way of our uh, mutual friend and mega connector, Clay Haybear. And Clay's track record, uh, as I was telling you before we hit record here, has always been stellar for referring guests. So no pressure at all. Uh, but on that <laughs> note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to what you're up to in the world today? Sure. Um, so my name is Al Pinapali, and I'm an author and a speaker. And I got my first book was called read this before our next meeting. Basically, my story is that I worked at Ernst & Young, which is an IT audit. It's an accounting firm, but I was an IT audit, which sounds um, probably as interesting as it actually was, um, <laughs> <clears throat> which is we would go into companies and people, people generally know what accounting is and what auditing is, but we were the guys that looked at the technology uh, behind the numbers to let the accountants know whether it, it was secure enough to re rely on the numbers. Um, but the point of the experience was one of the reasons why I really just could not stand it was we just every single day I had all of these meetings on my agenda. Not just the meetings with my clients, which were there a lot, there were a lot, but internal meetings as well. And, you know, I was pretty new to corporate America at the time. And so immediately to me, this, this felt strange. I mean, I couldn't understand why people would go to meeting after meeting after meeting um, when nothing seemed to be getting done inside of these meetings, but treating them as if this was just the way things were. Um, and that really frustrated me. And so after that, I kind of went on this crusade to kind of understand what is this meeting problem? How do we fix it? And that's what led me to the first book. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> and from there... I started um, writing on the topic, speaking on the topic, and really became kind of uh, one of the pioneers on trying to lead uh, what I like to think of as a meetings revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, and since then, I've kind of branched out and started talking about a lot of kind of some different topics and some different um, and, so, and some different um, other insights. But you know, meetings has been the driving factor for the last two or three years. Hmm. So a couple of questions around this. First, sort of interested in the journey before the journey that uh, takes you on this one and kind of, you know, what kinds of influences uh, you had that would finally cause you to make a decision to say to hell with it, I'm out of here and I'm going to go and change this. That's a good question. I mean, I think I'm just somebody who is very frustrated by um, things that don't seem to have a purpose. Yeah. I, I'm constantly asking the question, why? And I think it's kind of a blessing and a curse because when you ask the question, why, you often don't get the answers that are sufficient. Um, and it, it kind of is a uh, stifling thing f for uh, a lot of times because you, know, you need to know why in order to do something and oftentimes there's not a good why, but it also can lead to some creative breakthroughs. So you know, throughout my life, whether it be in college or even when I was a, when I was a kid, I mean, I remember you know, when I was a kid, um, we did this thing called the, the tongue taste map. You remember this, Srini? Do you, do you remember in school learning this thing called the tongue taste map where the tongue has different um, parts where one part of the tongue is supposed to taste bitter and the other other part is supposed to be responsible for, t for tasting sweet. Are, are you familiar with this at all? I'm not actually. Okay, well, it's a, it's a very common thing you learn in in grade school. And I remember what the teacher would do is they would leave this experiment. They'd have you in class have like these salty things and these sweet things, and you're supposed to. It's called a tongue map. You're supposed to take these little things like a lollipop and take and and <clears throat> place it on, for example, the sweet part of the tongue, and it's supposed to taste sweet. And then when you put it on what is purportedly the salty part of the tongue, it's supposed to not taste as sweet. And I remember doing that experiment and being like, this is BS. <laughs> I mean, this doesn't make any sense. There's, there's no, I mean, and I remember confronting the teacher and asking her, I mean, listen, this doesn't make any sense. Like, why are we learning this? Why is this the case when clearly this is not working for me? And I remember other students were having this problem too. 
And she just basically said something like, well, you know, that's the way it is. That's what the textbook says. And they've done lots of studies on this. And the more I asked the question why, uh, I was frustrated, but most of the other people just seemed to just go along to get along or get along to go along. Um, and it turns out years later, I read in some scientific journal, I was vindicated because the tongue taste map is completely BS. Um, <laughs> there's no, it, it was, it, it was, it dates back to some silly study that got exaggerated and, uh, we had been learning it, um, all wrong for, for like 70 years. And to me, it's just amazing that it took 70 years to debunk this thing. And still to this day, people, teachers all across the country are, are still teaching this now debunked myth. Um, so anyway, that was a long-winded way to explain that that's kind of been the guiding philosophy for me, um, that I'm always asking the question, why? And it often leads to answers that are not comfortable, but that often uh, propel me in directions where I can help fix some things. So let's talk about this idea of asking why and things without a purpose. I mean, how do we take that question of why uh, look at the things that seem like they don't have a purpose in our own life and find our own creative breakthroughs using that? Well, I, I mean, I think it's pretty simple, actually. I mean, we are constantly confronted with things that just don't make sense. And if we can just stop for a second and um, take a deep breath and ask the question why, um, make it a habit, then we can start to get to the real reasons why we're doing certain things, right? Like, why is it that um, we spend, like I was just talking to somebody uh, recently who um, was going to the gym and they were spending an hour every single day at the gym. And they, the funny thing is they weren't going to the gym very consistently. They were going maybe once every month or so. Um, something ridiculously low like that. And, and I asked them, why are you going for an hour? And they said, you have to go for an hour. And I said, who said you have to go for an hour? And the more they thought about it, the more they realized, well, it's, this is just some preconceived notion that he had in his head that you had to go for an hour. And it turns out there's a lot of research that suggests that you don't need to go to an hour for an hour to, to get good results. And in fact, if you go less amount of time, you're going to have more adherence. You're going to go to the gym more regularly, which, by the way, is probably, I mean, is the number one determinant of whether you're effectively fit and healthy is adherence, that you're sticking to a program. And so by just asking that question why, he was able to get to a, a place where he realized that an hour didn't necessarily have to be how long he had to go to. And he, he started going for 15 minutes, and it's still in the very early stages of this. But, you know, you can imagine and how um, this really might produce change in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, so the same thing goes for any type of creative work that we're doing. You know, you have to ask the question, well, why do I have to use this color instead of that color? Or why do I have to use this font instead of that font? Is it because somebody told you? Is it because you were taught that in grade school? I mean, the more we ask the question why, the more we realize how many things that we do creatively, physically in our lives is a result of what someone else told us that we didn't effectively question and understand the reasons for. Okay. So what do you think it is that keeps people from asking the question why and just blindly following what they've been told to do or what somebody else thinks they should do their entire lives? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, I mean, we would go effectively crazy if we asked why every single time, mm -hmm. right? I mean, we just don't have the resources or the cognitive bandwidth to ask why every single moment. We have to trust other people. We have to um, take some things at face value. Um, so there's that part. But we can't use that as an excuse because most people don't, I don't think, do it enough, especially when it comes to the critical things. Um, and so I think the, probably the reason why, uh, regardless of the bandwidth issue, why people don't do it is because it's hard. I mean, it's very difficult to ask the question, especially when it's when um, it's a lot easier to not ask the question and just continue to do what you're doing, right? Because why can lead you on a path that is very difficult, right? Because for example, I'm a writer. I know you are too, sweetie. Mm -hmm. You know, 
if you ask why too often, you are going to get very frustrated, but it often can be the mo- lead to the most creative breakthroughs ever, right? Because you know everybody knows who's in writing. You, you, you write an entire first draft, and you think it's the greatest thing ever. Sometimes you do. Hopefully you do. Um, but if you go back and you actually go through what stories you use, the, the sequence, why one paragraph was before another, and, con- and constantly ask the question, well, why did I make this choice? Why did I make that choice instead of that choice? What you're opening yourself up to is a lot more work, right? Because <laughs> right? then you're going to have to make all these changes in the second draft. And if the deadline is approaching, it's inconvenient, but it turns out that that is when, that is when the amazing happens. That's when all the miracles happen, not in the first draft, but the second, the third, or the fourth draft, when we constantly ask the question why and we're willing to let go of our attachment to the first thing because it was convenient and come up with better reasons for the new thing. Hmm. I love that. So one of the things you mentioned was this idea of discerning the critical things in which we should be asking why. How do you cultivate a capacity to discern the critical moments when we should ask why? I think it's probably... It's a good question, which I probably haven't thought enough about. I mean, I think that it partly is an intuition um, that you build after practicing it, right? I mean, you know, if like in writing, for example, which is the thing that keeps coming to mind right now, it's um, if you ask the question why enough times, you're, sometimes you're going to, uh, it's going to create a dead end, right? You, you know, you ask the question why and you end up spending a lot of time analyzing, well, why did I use this word instead of that word or this sentence instead of another sentence? And you realize that it, it was a waste of time because by the end, you ended up with the same sentence or something that's marginally better, but it wasn't worth the time that you spent. Right? But other times, it's a very productive activity. You, you ask the question, why? And it leads to this amazing breakthrough and you're able to actually build something that's infinitely better, by maybe not infinitely, but by an order of magnitude. And then you start to develop an intuition for, oh, okay, well, why did it work there? What was I, what was I questioning? Um, and you start to understand, well, here are the things that I could question and here are the things that I can't question or I shouldn't maybe question as much. And, you know, these things are different for every field, for every person, but it is something that I think comes through practice. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, I, I always, my favorite analogy to use is always, you know, like you're standing in two different spots of the same room and by answering the question of why and taking sort of that first step forward, you start to see things that you couldn't see before you had the answer to that question. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, the most important questions to ask why to are the the hidden assumptions. So here's the thing, like, it's so funny because when people say question your assumptions, it's such a silly, trivial way to put it because it assumes that the assumptions are sitting right in front of you, mm-hmm. right? Like, like you can actually see the assumptions, right? Assumptions are often things that we kind of eat, sleep, and breathe. They're, they're kind of like the, uh, the water that if we were fish, they're the water around us. If fish don't know they're in water, right? And we don't know that... We, we have these assumptions. So, you know, if, for example, you are um, creating or, or, you know, you're writing something, for example, you know, you might be thinking about changing the chapters or changing the sentences, but you don't for a second think that, wow, maybe my entire thesis is off base. Mm-hmm. It, maybe this is not a book about leadership. Maybe this is a book about creativity. And that's not something that you might, that might even kind of um, originally or so easily come to mind. You might actually have to step back for a second and really think about, okay, well, what are the assumptions that I'm not even aware of right now? What are some of the questions that I'm not asking that I should be asking um, because they're probably so uncomfortable that I'm blind to them right now? Those are the ones that often produce, the, I think, the best creative breakthroughs. Mm. I love that idea of exploring the things that are uncomfortable because I think that I feel like, you know, and I've said this somewhere, I said that, you know, almost all progress occurs outside your comfort zone. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. So, so one other question about the beginning part of this, and then I start, I want to start getting into the work that you've done around the Domino project and the books you've written. But, you know, it's interesting because you said you, you worked as an IT auditor and I, 
I think that our previous background always influences and shapes how we see the world and how we do our work, even if it's a background that we've been trying to shed or just trying to get rid of and, and hate everything about. Um, and I'm really interested in, in how that process of being an IT auditor has impacted the way you work and the way you see the world and the way you do the work that you do. That's a great question. I mean, I think that the IT auditor experience got me in touch with my strengths because IT auditing was not one of them. <laughs> so, so it taught me what I wasn't good at and what I am good at. Uh, IT auditing is very much about paying attention to detail. It's, I mean, you spend a lot of time in, in spreadsheets. You spend a lot of time documenting things and get and really, it's a it's a it's people that are very detail oriented do well in it, right? Because you have to cross your eyes uh, or cross the T's, dot your eyes, and that kind of thing. And to me, that is not my strength um, at all. I was not very good at that. Uh, I'm much better at the big picture stuff. I'm much better at. Um, the strategy rather than the, than the tactics, if you will. Um, so I realized that I needed to go into a field that allowed me to be very, very creative. Mm -hmm. um, and the details are going to be important. I'm going to have to deal with them eventually. But I need something that's going to allow me to kind of run free a little bit and just and just use my imagination and that kind of thing. And so that's why writing really, um, I gravitated towards writing because I mean, it's the ultimate uh, license to be free and to and and to kind of use your imagination because you're starting with a blank page, mm -hmm. um, and the details are important, but they're not they're not as important. And I think that's that's one of the things I learned about writing very early on, which is that I think so many people think that writing is about the details. They think it's about the mechanics about using the right word or using uh, being good at punctuation, grammar, or even having very kind of flowery prose mm -hmm. uh, to articulate your message. But I think I learned early on that writing is really 90% way more about the overall message you're trying to convey. To me, it's a very big picture thing. I mean, because if you don't have the big picture, if you don't really know what you're trying to say or have something worth talking about, which I think is probably 80-90% of writing, then the details don't matter at all. Um, in fact, you know, somebody like Nassim Taleb, um, who I think is amazing, he wrote Black Swan and uh, Anti-Fragile, uh, which I, I think are brilliant books. Um, he doesn't, apparently, I think this is true, uh, he doesn't even work with an editor. Um, his, and he may disagree with me on this, but his books aren't particularly well written in terms of the details, mm -hmm. uh, especially because he doesn't even work with an editor, so nobody's even catching these things. Um, but his ideas are so brilliant and his method of communication is so great that who cares, right? <laughs> I mean, if you get the message, you get the message. Who cares if, you did, if one word was misplaced or if it wasn't the right um, punctuation or, or it didn't sound exactly right because I think that writing is about the big picture stuff. So that's, that's kind of, that was my journey is, is as an auditor, I realized that I wasn't good at details. So go on a path and go into a place where the details don't matter as much as the big picture, the strategy, hmm. the purpose, the message. Yeah. So there's two comments I'll make. I mean, it sounds to me like all of this is really about alignment with the work that you're doing. And I've found often if you're not aligned with what you're doing, um, almost heart centered, I guess is, is a way to put it. There's always going to be sort of this sense of inner tor turmoil. And then the other, uh, other comment I'll make, and I've said this before, is that you can't hide shitty art behind great marketing, but uh, great art will be seen by the people who it's meant to be seen by. Yes, abs I absolutely agree with you. And and on the first part, I mean, I don't want to I don't want to um, say that it's it, you know like I couldn't discount, and I still can't discount the the importance of paying attention to detail. Mm -hmm. Something that I for, I struggle with a lot, but it's something that's really important. So I think you have to often, you know, you can't use. A weakness as an excuse. Right. I think I think you have to align yourself with your strengths, but also realize that 
if you want to fulfill any mission or you want to create any type of great work or you want to achieve any type of purpose, there's probably going to be some things you have to do and get good at uh, even if you're not good at it. So I think you should definitely align yourself with your strength but also pay attention to where your weakness may or may not be holding you back to achieving your ultimate purpose. Mm-hmm. So let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears and, and let's start talking about uh, your work with the Domino Project and that whole experience and, and how it led to the first book. Uh, I'd love to talk to you in detail. You know, we've had a couple of people who worked in the Domino Project here. We've had Willie Jackson. We've had Amber Ray. Uh, and I'll link up all those interviews uh, in the show notes for those of you guys listening. Uh, but I'd love to hear uh, your perspective from it, given that you are actually one of the people who had a tangible byproduct and something that is out in the world because of this. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an amazing experience. So, so the the way it went was, I was actually part of um, Samba, which is this. Uh, we called it Seth Go- Seth Godin's alternative MBA program. I hate Samba as a name, but we chose to call it that way as a shorthand. Um, and so, this was, I think, at this point, six years ago. This was the first time, kind of, Seth had created one of these programs um, as a way to help entrepreneurs. Um, learn entrepreneurship in kind of like a um, intensive incubator slash educational program. So myself and uh, eight other people went to his office at um, Hastings on Hudson for six months and worked with Seth. Um, and it was amazing. It was like, you know, I always tell people who don't know who Seth is, and I'm sure the people on this call know who he is. It's like, imagine just getting business advice every day with, you know, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Seth, jo- Seth is, to me, the Steve Jobs of marketing. And um, it, it was just unbelievable because every day for six months we would, um, we would work with him. He would kind of teach us concepts and we would, the, the entire program revolved around us starting these projects. I mean, or businesses, the, the point was instead of a kind of a theoretical MBA program where you kind of learn about business, Let's learn by doing, and that's what we did for six months with him. Mm-hmm. And and I was Clay A. Bear was was uh, one one of my colleagues there. Um, Ashita Gupta is another one. So it was amazing experience. I mean, I learned so much from from the program. Um, and then uh, when Seth was doing the Domino Project, uh, I think this was maybe a couple years later, maybe three years later. Um, because Seth started a program that was going to be his own independent publishing project. He partnered with Amazon. He thought the state of publishing was kind of in decline, and he wanted to create a project to, to basically run some experiments to show publishing, hey, here's an alternative way to, to do things in the, in, when it comes to books. Um, it just so happened the timing worked perfectly that it, that was just around the time where I was writing my meetings book, when I started writing my meetings book. And I had been talking to Seth. I mean, I had not even known that the Domino Project was starting. I mean, the timing was unbelievable. And I'd been talking to him right before, and I was telling him about my book, and he loved the concept. And so I was lucky enough to be published as one of the authors of the Domino Project. Um, So I wasn't actually part of the project in terms of like Willie Jackson and Mm -hmm. Michael Parrish Dudell, who were actually part of the, the team, but I was lucky enough to be one of the authors who was published, which was, um, you know, I feel, I, to this day, I feel incredibly privileged to be part of that group. I mean, we talk about Seth, Stephen Pressfield, Derek Sivers were published on that, on that project. So to be one of those authors was kind of um, unbelievably uh, humbling. Hmm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So I've asked this question to a couple of the Domino Project members. Talk to me about how working with Seth shifted the way you view the world, the way you view business. Because as I was thinking about you, you describing this, I thought, okay, what, would I, what question would I ask Seth Godin if I brought him back to the show? And my question would be, how do you cultivate your capacity for what you observe in the world? Because it's so unusual, it's so interesting, and it stands out so much. Um, but I'm really interested, you know, in your own perspective, how the work you did with Seth really shifted uh, the way you've thought about things, you know, from a life perspective, from a business perspective, from everything. Well, that is, was exactly my philosophy going into the program. I mean, when we first went to the program, I, I saw a lot of people in my group talking, taking furious notes every time Seth would talk because they wanted the facts, you know, they wanted the information, which obviously we all want the information, but I just sat, sat back the entire six months because I knew I don't care about the facts. I could read his books to get the facts, the information. What I wanted to know is how does he think? Because this is obviously a world-class thinker. And I thought if I could think like Seth thinks, then it doesn't matter about the facts because I could always figure out the facts. And, 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 and uh, basically it was a problem-solving strategy that, that I was looking for him, from him. Um, so one of the things that um, I came out of this in terms of uh, came out of the program understanding is that Seth, and just like a lot of great problem solvers, think very differently. Um, and what he does is he thinks backwards often, which completely blew my mind. It was so hard to get, but after six months with him, I think I got it, which is that a lot, like for example, you know, uh, I've, I'll never forget this, this great example he uses about marketing, which is um, what is the difference? Why is it that there are so many famous massage therapists? Or I'm sorry, rather, there's so many famous hairstylists, but there are no famous massage therapists. Well, the answer is, if you're a hairstylist and, and you give a great haircut, that person goes out into the world and they have a great haircut and everybody sees it. And 
they comment on it and they ask you, where did you get your hair done? And they say, well, it was my great stylist. And so the stylist builds a ton of business that way. Compare that with a massage therapist. Nobody in the world walks around saying, hey, you look like you had a great massage, mm -hmm. right? It's not something you notice. So it turns out that some ideas are just inherently more, uh, there's higher probability that they're going to go viral than others, right? That they're going to spread going than others. So when you think about what projects you want to pursue, instead of most people think, the, the, the kind of the obvious way, which is, okay, I have this project. How am I going to get it to spread? Mm -hmm. Somebody who's thinking backwards will say, why don't, in a world where we know that a lot of things spread more than others, why don't I pick a project that I know is more likely to spread? Mm. Right? It's like the person that's choosing a career and wants, to, and, and wants to spread their ideas to the world. They have the choice. You can choose to be a massage therapist or you can choose to be the, the hairstylist. And I'm not saying you have to choose one or the other, but if you're in the business of spreading ideas, you know, you might really want to consider doing the hairstylist work. And it's, it's that foresight of thinking that way before you jump into a project, before you ship an idea, before you write something that I think is indispensable um, when it comes to problem solving and creativity. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I love this idea of the business of spreading ideas. In fact, I think that's what we're going to title the interview. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to have a shameless plug here. I'm working on something called uh, The Compass, and it's a writing project. And I thought about doing it as a Kindle book and putting it up. And I said, yeah, I'll make $1.99 per book if, if I put it up. And I thought, what's more important here, the book or the idea of spreading? And I thought, you know what? I want the idea to spread. So to hell with the Kindle piece, I'm just going to put up a landing page and I'm going to just give it away because it's more important that the idea spread. Right. And, and I think that's a great point, and I think that that's what people want, right? That's so, that's so often the thing that, that we want and the thing is so important, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if you have the greatest idea in the world. If people don't know about it, who cares, right? It's, it's kind of like, there, it's, a, it's a very nuanced debate um, in terms of, you know, this idea of writing for yourself or writing for an audience. I mean, I can see kind of arguments on both sides, but what I can't see is a, is a writer or an artist who's just struggling at home who refuses to think about marketing because he wants to maintain perfect integrity with his own work, right? I mean, that is a, that is a straw man that I don't think is very um, um, present in, in the world because I don't know a lot of people like that. But clearly, to me, that's not the right path, right? And so there's obviously somewhere in the middle because um, I also don't think it's appropriate to just think about, okay, well, what is the thing that's going to spread and, 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 and be seen by millions of people? Mm -hmm. But there's somewhere in the middle where you can, you can achieve both, I think, if you, you, can, you can still maintain integrity with yourself and you can adjust your work so that way it's more likely to be seen by people that can actually have an impact on well, you know, to me, this is really about intention, right? And I think my, my favorite quote about this is what Austin Kleon says uh, in Show Your Work, uh, where he says, you want hearts, not eyeballs. And I think that right. if you start with the intention of eyeballs, uh, that's where you run into this issue where you start to water down the work. Whereas if you start with the intention of capturing hearts and minds, and then you layer on what you're talking about, the ideas seem like they're much more likely to spread. And that's, that's been my experience across the board with anything that I have created. Yes, I, I'm totally on board with that. Well, let's do this. Let, let's talk about the, the meetings book and, and sort of the core concepts from it, because I would imagine a lot of this is about productivity. I can tell you I completely relate to uh, what you're talking about in meetings. You know, the very last corporate job I had, we would have a Monday meeting. And I remember thinking, I'm like, is the only reason we have this meeting because it's Monday? Because nothing actually gets done here. Nothing gets shipped because of this meeting. In fact, a project that we had spent a year working on got tabled and I lost the job. And I actually think those meetings were one of the very reasons that project never shipped. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I think that meetings are really toxic in in organizational culture these days. I mean, they really, if you see it, it's this, it's this incredible um, epidemic that I see in every big organization where people's calendars are filled with bad meetings. And these meetings aren't just 
the, I mean, the cost of the meetings is, is on some level obvious, right? If you just take all these meetings, and see, there'll be all these little calculators online where you can say, okay, um, take the number of meetings in your organization or on your team and multiply them by the number of attendees that are at that meeting and then multiply that by the, the hours that are in that meeting and, the, and the, the average salary per hour of the people at those meetings. And what you do when you do all these calculations is you'll find out the financial cost of how much these meetings are wasting in terms of expense. But that's not even the biggest expense, right? That's not the biggest cost. The biggest cost is the emotional toll on people. The, the amount of kind of creativity it sucks from the organization, the amount of energy it sucks. Because anybody who is, especially creative people, they know that when you're at an organization and you have all these meetings, it, it sucks the, the life from you and you're not able to really produce good works, to do the stuff that you really actually love to do, that you care about, that actually furthers the mission, uh, you're either your own personal mission or the, issue of, or the mission of the organization. And to me, that's one of the reasons why I attack meetings because it's, it's that real thing that stands in the way of people being able to do their, their kind of the best work. Mm-hmm. So how do we fix it? Well, one of the ways to fix it is actually pretty simple, which is stop having so many bad meetings. <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I don't say that just as kind of like a trivial little um, recommendation. I actually say that with intention because it turns out when you run an experiment, and I have several, uh, you know, I have organizations that do this all the time where I, where I persuade them to, where you tell them, hey, here, that weekly staff meeting that you have where every Monday you have this meeting, just cancel it. Cancel it for the next three weeks. Three weeks, okay? If after three weeks, if the world uh, ends and the entire team is in shambles, bring the meeting back. But just, I want you to just evaluate for three weeks and then see what happens. And what happens is, what you'll find more times than not is that the world doesn't end. Mm-hmm. In fact, people find a way to get their work done regardless. If a decision needs to be made, they don't wait for the meeting. They actually consult the people. Uh, you know, they might pick up the phone and call the person who, uh, who's the person that they need to talk to about the decision, and then they make the decision, right? Or if they need to communicate something to people, they just email it to them, right? I mean, technology is amazing these days. We don't even we have more than email. We have audio, like we're doing right now. We're recording audio right now. We have video, like the Khan Academy guys are doing. You know, you can record that and send it out. So what we're finding is that when you actually eliminate the meeting, you, are, you see so many different um, opportunities available to do that same work in ways that aren't what the meeting often is, which is what I call a weapon of mass interruption. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, and that's what it becomes. So that's one of the main ways to really fix meetings. Not, not just because this isn't always, the, this isn't always the, the tool, but what that does is when you cancel the meeting, for example, is it gives you a sense of why, right? It goes back to the question of why. Why are we having this meeting to begin with? When you cancel the meeting, you now have to ask a different question because if you want that meeting back, you can't just, you can't just have it because it's Monday, right? Because now you actually have to have a purpose if you want to uh, actually have the meeting and you're forced to actually think through, well, what is the reason why we're having this meeting? What is the reason we're having this meeting instead of using a memo or instead of just huddling together with this other guy and making a decision? Mm-hmm. And when you engage in that thought process, some magical things happen because, one, you often realize that there is no purpose, so you don't have the meeting. Or if you do have the meeting, you actually know the real purpose and the meeting becomes actually a very effective tool to get work done because it has a purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because I, I think this to me, as, as I listen to you say that, I think it applies to more than just meetings you have with other people, but everything that is on your list for the day is kind of a meeting with yourself. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's amazing because meetings we've put into an entirely different category of things. Like meetings now have, I call, uh, I say they've been institutionalized, mm-hmm. which is institutionalized in the sense that meetings now have become their own function. Right? Like everybody knows that email is not a function, right? Email is a vehicle, it's a tool. Like if you want to communicate with somebody, we say to ourselves, okay, should I pick up the phone or should I email them? We get that. We relate to the phone call 
and the email as tools that we use to accomplish a certain purpose. That is not how we use meetings. Meetings are the purpose in and of themselves most of the time. We meet because we feel like we should meet. Mm -hmm. And because of that disconnect, because we don't see it as a tool in the same category as email and phone calls, it creates these perverse incentives where people hold them and they don't question why they're there. So it's, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why this has become so problematic, exactly what you're saying, Srini, is that unlike a to-do list where you can go through and you can actually say, hey, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? The meeting is something that's become so institutionalized, it's not even on the to-do list. It's on our calendar and we just assume it has to be there. Mm, I love that. Well, let's do this. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit and let's start talking about sort of the next section of your work. Because I know Clay had mentioned to me you're working on some really interesting stuff around persuasion. Uh, and I really want to dig deep into this because this is really fascinating territory. So let, let's get right into this. All right. So the book is going to be called Persuadable. Um, and the premise is there are a million books on how to be more persuasive. But I argue in our culture, we're actually already pretty persuasive. What we're not is persuadable in the sense that no one really has a genuine willingness to change their own minds. Mm -hmm. So if we're in an argument, Srini, I'm trying to persuade you, you're trying to persuade me, but neither one of us really wants to be persuaded because in our culture being persuaded is perceived as a weakness. Well, I think that's silly because especially in a world that's changing faster than ever, not only is being persuadable, the genuine willingness to change your mind, a the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, it's a competitive advantage in business and in life. Um, so I'm very excited about this. I've work, been working on this book for uh, two and a half years almost now, and um, I'm hoping it it changes the way people think about persuasion. Hmm. So talk to us specifically about some of the research that has gone into this and some of the things that you've learned and some of the key insights you've learned about becoming more persuadable. And probably more importantly to me is how does becoming persuadable impact this whole uh, business of spreading ideas? Well, let's attack the, the first one. Um, there's a lot of research. This is a very research-driven book. Um, but if I had to kind of point out a couple things, one is that it's, it's kind of what I alluded to earlier, which is that one of the reasons why we're not persuadable is because we're not willing, right? So for example, the, there's this great quote, I think it was Upton Sinclair who says something like, um, you know, it's impossible to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. <laughs> so like if you're, you know, if you're in a um, role at a company, for example, and um, you, know, you think that company, you know, that role is starting to go away. Right, it's, it, it seems to not in in a digital age, for example, this role seems like it might not be useful anymore. Well, that person might just be unpersuadable because they don't want, they don't like that future. So they're going to kind of be unwilling to even entertain the idea because of how negatively it impacts them. Now, that's that's somewhat of the obvious reason we're persuadable. But the other reason that I think has been so underappreciated and so under talked about is the idea that it's not just this willingness, right? It's not something we consciously do. It's also an ability. The reason why we're unpersuadable is often because we don't know how to be persuaded. It turns out that our brain is um, what cognitive scientists call a uh, cognitive miser, right? We're always trying to conserve energy. And so we have a, every single one of us has a model of the world, a belief system, a way that we think the world is. And it turns out that our brain likes to stick with that model of the world. And any evidence that is presented to us that threatens to change that, we just look at it through our existing model of the world, and it just tends to support the model of the world that we already have. And so what we need to do in order to be persuadable is we need to be able to shift our model of the world. It's, it's, it's called reflective thinking, mm -hmm. right? We need to be able to just stop for a moment and realize that, wow, listen, our brain is biased. I have to just assume for a second. Let me just, let me just assume for a moment's notice that my current model of the world might be wrong and maybe it's another model of the world. And as soon as we start to think like that, right, as soon as the guy who's at the job 
who in his model of the world, his role is absolutely um, indispensable, right? That's his model of the world. As soon as he can just stop for a second, realize that his brain is leading him in that direction and say, you know what, let me just consider a world in which maybe my job isn't really indispensable. He will then be in a position to maybe understand the truth, which is maybe his job is going away. Mm -hmm. And if he can do that, he can rush to build the skills that are necessary to, to find an even better job and to create new art and to create um, the kind of work that is going to be uh, meaningful for him in his life and for his organization. So I guess the question for me then is, how do you identify what your current model of the world is so then you can start poking holes in it? That's a great question. And the answer is other people, mm. right? It's, this is the reason why we get into so many arguments, right? You should, every time you're in an argument, it's a conflict of models of the world, right? Let's just take a creative argument, right? You know, Sarita, you think, you know, you're working with a partner on a website and you think that the website's going to look great this way, right? This really beautiful, sleek design. And your partner says, wait a minute, you know, the goal of the website isn't to look amazing. It's to get conversions, mm -hmm. right? That's the goal. So I know you, I know it looks great, but who cares if it does, if it's, if, if it, it's not getting conversions. In your, mo in your model world, he, what he's saying is going to sound incomprehensible to you. <laughs> you know? It's just not going to make any sense because your model of the world is so fixed and as a cognitive miser, it's so easy just to dismiss that as, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But what he's doing is he's giving you the greatest gift in the world. He's, this conflict between you two is giving you a sense of, wait a minute, He's a smart guy. I wouldn't be partners with him otherwise. I mean, you know, I know I'm smart, but he's smart too. So what he's saying probably has some validity. So let me use this as an excuse to question my own model of the world. Let me, let me for a second just put my idea that the website needs to be beautiful and entertain his model of the world that the website needs to convert. And if you can do that, that doesn't mean you're going to be persuaded. But now you have a chance of being persuaded. Before you didn't even have a chance. Now you have a chance. And so that's the key is to realize that other people in the world can help you identify the limiting beliefs and the assumptions that are holding you back if you're willing to let them. Hmm. I would imagine this applies not just uh, in a business context, but to our entire life. Oh, absolutely. I think this is the, the goal of this book is not to just help people in business, but in relationships, in politics. I really think that this understanding, I'm hoping, of being persuadable will really help people grow and make great decisions in every facet of their life. Wow. So I wanted to um, address your second question, which I think is an incredibly important one, um, which is about this, the business of spreading ideas. Mm -hmm. Because this is one of the, probably the most controversial things I talk about in the book, um, which is this idea that as soon as you are, everybody wants to, for example, change the world, right? Everyone wants to spread their idea. And the question of, of how do I spread my idea, idea already presupposes something that is so important that people never question, which is, is this the right idea to begin with? Hmm. When you say you want to change the world, the most dangerous thing you can do is to be unpersuadable because we are, we're taught all the time that it's so important to have conviction in your idea and to you know, really stay the course. But that is the, um, the mantra of somebody that doesn't care about society, right? Because oftentimes our, our ideas, our cha the change we want to bring to the world might not be the best change, right? Maybe, there's a not, maybe it's not the best idea. And we have to be willing before we're ready to spread our idea, we have to be ready and willing often to expose the idea to criticism and scrutiny to, to, in order to identify whether it's the right idea to begin with. Wow. So I'll give you one example of this because I was just talking to somebody about this. Um, there's somebody who's another writer who was talking about how um, he's writing a book and he had me review it, and I realized that it, it didn't really have much much research in there. 
um, it wasn't really, uh, there wasn't a lot of research, there wasn't a lot of, you know, kind of empirical support for whether the idea, whether his ideas were, were kind of uh, good or not. And so I asked him, I said, listen, buddy, why, why is there no research in here? And he said, oh, you know, it didn't, I, I realized that people who read my work aren't really convinced by the research, right? Um, it's kind of just a waste of my time because it doesn't really help my, my argument. Um, because uh, it's just not really, they're not persuaded by it. They're persuaded by the stories. And immediately I was kind of horrified by that because he fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of research. The purpose of research isn't just to persuade other people. That's part of it. But the purpose of research is to find out whether the idea that you're trying to persuade them of is the right idea to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. if, it's if it's true. And so often we engage in these creative projects um, uh, whether it be writing or, or anything that has implications for society and for humanity because that's, I would imagine, what a lot of your listeners do when, without giving um, any thought or attention to the idea that, wait a minute, is this the right idea to begin with? Is there a better idea? I mean, I can't tell you how many charities there are who... Uh, who, where there's another competing charity that they're competing with, but the other charity just does what they're doing so much better, right? So they have a question to ask themselves. Should I continue to work on my own charity? Or if I'm really committed to this cause and solving this problem, maybe I should shut down and start helping that other charity. Now, that's a very big, different way of looking at the world, but I think it's, it's about time for that kind of change. Mm. I love it. I mean, there's just pure gold here. So many interesting insights. And we could talk for another two hours about some of the stuff you're talking right. about. Uh, well, Al, this has been really, like I said, amazing. So I'm going to wrap with my final question. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Wow, that's a profound question. And uh, I think it's similar to what we were just talking about, which is this idea of looking at the world as a big picture, as a, as a kind of, um, as a collective pursuit. Like we're all in this together and, you know, we're so often thinking about what we can do um, that is going to impact the world from our perspective. But we so often don't think about it from the other side. Like, if the world needed something to be done, what is that thing? And why aren't I doing it? Right? It's this idea of kind of really understanding what the world needs and delivering that thing in a way that's selfless, which is often incredibly hard. And I can't say that I'm doing it myself, but the people that are out there that do it and you can see it, I think are the most unmistakable people that I've ever come across. Amazing. Well, Al, uh, it has been my absolute pleasure to have you here as a guest on The Unmistakable Creative. Like I said, Clay always has a track record for referring hit guests, and uh, I know that you'll be one. So thank you so much for your time. And for those of you guys listening, we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.